The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. It's to be humbled in your presence. So may it be so today. Bless our time together, Lord. We pray all this in Jesus' name and God's people said, amen. Well, I do invite you to Revelation chapter 9, Revelation chapter 9 this morning. Uh, again, I appreciate Brother Ben preaching last week. We were blessed to go uh, visit our in-laws for a weekend away uh, to see how they were doing down in Oklahoma. And uh, I've often said this, and it's been hard to find a church where we've co- consistently heard the word preached, and uh, we we're blessed to have been hearing the word last week in Oklahoma. And that's a, that's a blessing. A young man of 24 uh, is in the pulpit. And he celebrated his one-year anniversary. I thought, I'm almost 16 years older than you. I, I'm, I'm feeling all the age coming at me here. But he had such exuberance, and they were celebrating. You know what they did after their church last week? They had a potluck. So we did not partake. But if you're here today, we should have plenty of food afterwards. You're welcome to stay for that as well. You should be there by now. If you're uh, able to stand this morning, would you stand in uh, the reading of God's Word as we look at Revelation chapter 9? We're going to start in verse 12, this, uh, the, the woe here. Woe number six, and we'll read down to the end of the chapter. If you're visiting with us, we've been in a uh, months-long study since Mother's Day weekend of Revelation. We've entitled it God Wins. Uh, There's a lot of details, a lot of things we can chase in Revelation. We do at times, but the base of it is is that God wins. He has won the victory. If you've not heard Ben's sermon last week on this, you need to take a look at it. Listen to it on our website. He details that very, very well. But here in chapter 9, verse 12, we'll start. Hear God's word this morning. The first woe has passed. Verses, that's verses 11 through 12, 1 through 11. Behold, two woes are still to come. Then verse 13, the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. And the number of mounted troops is twice 10,000 times 10,000. That's 200,000 if you're keeping track. I heard their number. And this is how, verse 17, I saw the horses in the vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates, the color of fire and sapphire and of sulfur. Your Bible may say brimstone there. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads. And fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. And verse 18, by three plagues, a third of mankind was killed. And by fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. Verse 20, they rest, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they, verse 21, repent of their murders, their sorceries, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. This is a heavy text, isn't it? I pray we do it to God's glory. The title today is God Wins Over War, and God Wins Over War Every Time. Will you pray with me this morning? May God bless the reading, the hearing, and doing of his word. Let's pray together. Father, as we enter a time of study now, as we are on the heels of a celebration of a new life in Christ and a new life walking to that finish line by your grace through the ups and downs of the Christian life, 
But Father, out of the things we experience in this life, many of which may be in the text this morning, we pray for much steadfastness, much perseverance, and Father, much grace and strength to face the days that are ours ahead. Father, as we do this, we do this to your glory. If there's any here without Christ, draw them to Christ. For those in Christ, as Peter prayed, may we grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray all these things and ask it in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Well, there's a story told about a husband waiting on his wife to get ready for their family trip. It's about a two or three hour trip. And during this trip, the wife is upstairs getting ready and the gentleman decides to turn on the TV for the football game. And so he watches the game. And during the game, he's down to the last two minutes and his favorite team is behind a touchdown. And wouldn't you know, he gets the, his favorite team gets the football and they score. The score is now tied. So what do they do in football when the score is tied with less than two minutes left? They usually kick an onside kick. And after a lot of no, getting nowhere, it comes down to the final few seconds. The quarterback gets the ball. He throws it into the end zone, and the guy catches it, and the man is cheering because his favorite team has won. And then he yells upstairs, honey, let's go. And they get in the car, and they start going. About two hours down in the three-hour trip, the wife is bored of talking to her husband, and he, she turns on the radio. And wouldn't you know, it's the same game the husband has already watched. And so cool as a cucumber, he looks at her and says, I bet you they're going to win the game. So with two minutes left, you know the story, don't you? They score a touchdown. They kick an onside kick. They run some plays and eventually comes down to the end. And the wife is going crazy. She's sweating and, you know, the roller coaster and all those sorts of things that go on with that. And they throw the Hail Mary pass. And what happens? They get a touchdown. And she cheers and says, how did you know this all along? He said, I've already seen how it all happened. I already knew what was going to happen. And by the way, I won the bet, whatever that was. Look, a lot of us forget that's how God is in this world. God has already seen what will happen in every way, shape, and form. And he's as cool, cool as a cucumber as things play out in this world. Look, we live in a world of death, war, terrorism, and a host of human calamities. And we may ask ourselves, where is God in all of this? Where is God? Is he like that wife who is having the ups and downs and not sure what's going to happen? But where is God's sovereignty? How is he in control? How is he winning over war? May I remind you of Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, that many of you know well. It will be on the screen. As for you, Joseph said to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Even though Joseph could not see sometimes literally in front of him what was going to happen next, God was able to use those situations to draw him closer to himself and save a nation in the process. This morning, I submit to you, and I want to talk to you about very clearly this morning, that as the church, we're in the middle of a battle that we won't lose, and we're engaged in a mission that will not fail. God wins. Satan has been defeated. He's not the yet king. He's already the king, stealing the line from my brother who preached last week. He is the king. And when we come to a passage like this, we need to be reminded that God has foreseen every situation that you face and every situation that the church faces, and he isn't worried one bit because he's got this. He's in control. This cross teaches us that in God's hands, what may seem to be a crushing defeat will actually be a victory of grace for us. And so, friends, as we come to Revelation, we see what those first century Christians John's writing to did not see. 
we see through every century that God has still been on his throne, even when it seems like God is not on his throne. If you're struggling today to see the good of God coming through the world as wars in Israel, as they start a ground offensive in northern Gaza, as the Ukraine and Russian war goes on, as wars in Africa continue to go, as as mass shootings happen in Maine, all across this world, I want to remind you our mission will not fail because God cannot fail. And that is what we have to see as we come to this very tough passage of Scripture. I just want to walk this through. No cutesy uh, 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 alliteration today. No fancy words. We're just going to look at the who, what, when, where, how, and why. We're going to see what it means, and we're going to apply this text. Because I don't really know any other way to tackle this as it has been. Before we get there, I just want to remind you where we've been in Revelation. Again, Ben did a very stand-up job doing this last week. But we've traversed through seven churches, seven letters of seven churches in chapters 1 to 3. We saw in chapter 4 of Revelation, there was a heavenly throne and a lamb who was slain or standing like one who was slain. And in doing so, he had a book. And that book were the seals, the seven seals, the history of the world being played out in front of our eyes. And then we came down to chapter 6 through 8, and we looked at those seven seals from the seven scrolls. And now we find ourselves in the midst of the seven trumpets. The first four trumpets were related to God's creation. Last week, it was related to the inhabitants of the earth and the demonic people coming therefore. Today, we're going to see God over war. And I want to start with that, the who, what, when, where. If you'll start with me. But I want you to go actually back to chapter 8, verse 13. I want to talk to you about the who. First, the who. Who are these people that are in chapter 9? Well, I want to take you back to chapter 8, verse 13, if you have your Bible. It says, then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. He said, woe, woe, woe to those who inhabit or dwell on the earth. And stop right there. Who is chapter 9 written to? Chapter 9 is written to the inhabitants of the earth. Specifically, those who persist in their sin but have not yet turned to come to know Jesus Christ. They are the specific judgments in chapter 9 against those who've rejected divine authority. This isn't just about where people live on the earth. It's about who people trust in on the earth. There's a theological distinction lying in the sand being drawn in Revelation 9 that we just read. And if you're not a Christian, this is especially for you. You may come to church today. You may be here for a variety of reasons. But let me tell you, this sermon is for you. God may be telling you today, you're part of this group, these inhabitants of the earth, where people live that are uh, depicting the ones facing these troubles that have yet not come to Christ. That's the who. Look back at the what. Go back to Revelation chapter 9. We're going to hop, skip, and jump around a bit to keep the who, what, when in order. But the what, what is going on in Revelation chapter 9? Go back to chapter 9, verse 16. He tells us, he says, the number of mounted troops was 200 million with lion-like heads emitting fire, smoke, and also sulfur. That's verse 17. Now, pastor, are these literal images or are they symbolic? May I remind you, these are probably symbolic images detailing a more intense impact of a demonic assault that you saw last week at the beginning of chapter 9. In fact, their breastplates are fiery red, dark blue, yellow as sulfur. These are to symbolize deception. 
These are to, to symbolize what is happening as this new trumpet is blown, that the earth is being invaded by forces that are not on God's side. But yet God has them under his control. They're leading people astray. They're moving away with people. You say, well, Darren, are those 200 million troops really going to be around? Look, I think, again, he's highlighting the intensity of what is happening here in this trumpet. The fiery red, the dark blue, the yellow is sulfur or brimstone are not meant for precise interpretation, but they're to show you what is going to be happening on earth is so terrible that even words cannot describe it. That's the who. It's people on the earth. The what? It's a demonic force, an immeasurable multitude. But I want you to see three, the when. Look at verse 15. This was a curious verse, wasn't it? Verse 15, he says, So the four angels had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year. I mean, that sounds pretty specific to me, doesn't it? Uh, this, This clearly has to mean that this is a specific day. Well, maybe. We believe it's partially fulfilled, but it's not yet completed. Welcome to the living the Christian life. The ha- it has happened, but it hasn't fully happened. The complexities of Revelation is what it's communicating here in the wind is that it is starting. Be prepared. It's going to get worse before it gets better. If it ever does, outside of Christ, it doesn't. It's going to get worse. And it adds a layer of urgency. Can I just say it again? If you're here today, and maybe you said, I don't need to know Jesus because... I've got time. I'm going to wait for my kids to grow up. I'm going to wait till I grow up. I'm going to wait for the Royals to win a World Series and uh, whatever it is. Be very careful. This last week, we had a former staff member whose wife, who was a Christian, passed away suddenly, 33 years old. 33 years, young child. Many of you know who I'm talking about. And I spoke with Josh, our former youth pastor of years gone by. They've been here the last couple years helping in the summer with VBS and evangelism. I said, brother, if there's one message that you could tell people who don't know Jesus, what is it? He said, first off, you need to come to know Jesus. And I praise God that my wife did. But he said, second of all, you don't know when your time may come. Be ready. And what is happening here is not a specific time in Revelation 9.15, but it's a reminder that the divine precision, the urgency is here. Do you know the God? that is coming to bring these plagues and trumpets. That's the when. The where. Look at verse 14. You saw that key uh, specific, and if you know your geography in the Middle East, there's a key river mentioned here, the Euphrates River. Euphrates River. That runs through modern-day Iraq and Iran and along that area. Why is he mentioned this? Because if you're a Jew or a Christian in the first century and you hear the word Euphrates, you immediately think of judgment coming. If you were a Jew, you remember back in, well, you remember your ancestors at least back in 722 B.C. that Assyria came across the river Euphrates to take over northern Israel. If you're a Jew in 586 B.C., you remember that the Babylonians came across the river Euphrates to take over the southern kingdom, Judah. And there it was. So in their minds, the word Euphrates has a symbolic representation of judgment. When you hear the word Euphrates, it's not a good thing. In fact, it's a judgmental thing. The Euphrates represents a source of Jewish trouble, even today with all the things going on. You ask a Jew who lives in Israel, the nation of Israel as it is today, what happens beyond the Euphrates? And there's almost a shaking that goes on because it reminds them of judgments of days gone past. So why? Why this trumpet, the sixth trumpet? Well, look at verse 20 and 21. 
There are two purposes here, I think, that are very clear. The why. The first is, is that it's an act of divine judgment. Why does God bring this? Because he told the world that they need to repent. He told the world that there's coming a day when he will burn up like Sodom and Gomorrah with fire and sulfur. But secondly, that trumpet is like those great things that warn us in springtime in Kansas City. Now, I did not grow up in Oklahoma. My wife did. But every time you hear a tornado siren go off in Oklahoma, you better get somewhere quickly. There are more than here, probably so. But I can recall, as I have often go back to this event, and I've told this before to you a couple weeks ago, standing at William Jewell 500 College Hill on the highest point in Kansas City, standing up there throwing a Frisbee out on the lawn of the quad, and within five minutes going from that, sprinting to our dorm because we heard the siren and all the windows busting out of Eaton Hall up there those so many years ago. Be very, very careful that you don't let the trumpet blast sirens of God's warning come. Because every tragedy, every catastrophe, every natural disaster is a divine reminder to repent. C.S. Lewis said it best, I think, when he wrote, God shouts to us in our pain, urging us to come to him. But did you notice what these people did? Look at the end of verse 21, or start of verse 21. They did not repent of their murders, sorcery, sexual immoralities, or thefts. God gives them warning after warning after warning, yet they still say, I'm good, God. Don't need you. I'm okay. That's the who, the what, the when, the where, and the why. Can we look at this a little bit deeper now? Number two, what does this mean? Say, didn't you just tell us what it means? Yeah, this is kind of like the Cliff Notes version. Let's get down to the uh, uh, unabridged version, if you will. We have been seeing that Revelation is a book of comfort. And that all the visions, all the seals, all the trumpets, all the bulls, all the numbers, all the everything is for one, maybe two purposes. Is that God wins. God wins. And it is brought about to show you that he is in control for the comfort of his people. And ultimately, the destruction of the ungodly. That is what Revelation is all about. Over and over again, we have seen seven churches, seven seals, seven cycles, all these things, and they are designed to warn us again and again and again and again. Do you know Jesus Christ? That's why, and I grew up in a church this way that uh, uh, really went to the deep end of, of every nuance of revelation. We got to know what every, uh, every uh, symbol means and every time of every this means. Be careful. Don't chase those rabbits. It should implore you, Christian, to share your faith. It should, it should encourage you to go out to the highways and byways and tell everyone you know that there's coming a judgment. And yeah, you're going to look weird. And yeah, you're going to feel awkward. But this is the judgment that is coming upon all of us. We saw last week that the bulls are pouring out God's wrath. And now there's the next series here. It's getting even worse in fact, you might say the trumpets are designed to warn, and there's an intensity growing throughout all the book. There is an intensity growing throughout all the book. It's intensified repetition, not equal repetition. God's warning us to present things, present things to come, and they will come. Amy, if you want to put the next slide up on the screen, that'd be great. There is something to be said. There is a growing intensity. You ever wonder 
when you were growing up as a kid. I don't know. We don't do this with our kids so much, but many of you are of a generation when uh, your parents called your name. Hey, Bobby. Hey, Bobby. Bobby Christopher. Bobby Christopher. Bobby Christopher Smith, get here now. You know, there's a growing intensity as your name is being called and you're ignoring those calls, right? That's how it goes. And so it is here. It's not just that these warnings are being sounded. It's he's God telling us in his mercy and his grace that all these things are coming to be woe to the inhabitants of the earth. What it means is, is that these are things that are out of your control. You can't hide in the mountains. You can't go hide in the, the woods somewhere. You can't go to Iceland where no one else is going to live. God's judgment is comprehensive. But really what this speaks of and what this talks about, it's a picture of war. I want to tell you that primarily here we see the dreadfulness of war. If you will look back at all this passage from 9, 12 through 21, you see constant war language. There are horses, there are mouths, there are tails, there are mounted troops, there are 200,000 of them, there are breastplates. There are all these things happening. It's really about war. And Jesus said in Matthew 24, you shall hear wars and rumors of wars. And so here you are seeing that happen. This is not a call to a, a, a war called Armageddon. It's a commentary in general about all time. War at any period is like the poor. It's always with us. There's never been a generation that's lived without the earth that has not faced war. In fact, every generation has faced it so much, we get so used to it, like a mass shooting, it doesn't even blink an eye for us. We're so uh, numb to it, in a sense. And so, friends, how do you interpret this? This will be the next thing up. It's not literal. Through symbolic, apocalyptic language, we see the awfulness of war. You get a monstrous picture, and we have a lot of young faces in here, and it's Halloween time and all that, but I, 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 to be honest with you, I thought about putting up some art, uh, depictions uh, artists had of these beasts, but they're scary. Lion's heads, serpent tails, smoke, fire, and brimstone. What God seems to be telling us is that he's showing us the monstrosity of war and what people are capable of when he re releases the reins to a degree, still in control God is, but releases them to do their own things. I mean, one scholar counted from 1480 to today. You ready for this? Great Britain, since 1480, has been involved in 78 wars. France, 71 wars. Spain, 64. Russia, 61. Austria, 52. Germany, 23. U.S., 13. China, 11. And Japan, 9. And that's only the beginning. Think of all the wars going on right now. What this passage is meant to impress on our minds is that God has basically said to these people, look, you want your sin? You want your rebelliousness? You want your war? Then take it. The echoes of Romans 1, that he gave them over to their sin, is all over this passage. And so, friends, I want to remind you this morning that God says, all right, I'll give you the rudder humanity, and I'll look at what a mess you make of it. Because we think we're the greatest generation. Didn't every generation say that? Well, the generation before us was really, really bad. Then you get the older generations that says that, what's that phrase? Back in my day. But guess what? Every generation, when given the reins apart from God, has the same situation. They turn into a Cain killing an Abel. It's never good. 
What this means is, is that we see God here once again in control of all things. I want to speak to you on that for just a moment. Three practical takeaways as we land this plane today. The first is this. We need to bow under the sovereignty of God. We need to bow under the sovereignty of God or God's sovereignty. Psalm 76 verse 10 says, God makes even the wrath of man to praise him. Hear that again. He says in Psalm 76, that he makes even the wrath of man to praise him. And so as you come to these different visions and different things, you need to know that God even receives praise when men do terrible things. How? Well, we'll unpack that here in just a second. But before we get there, I want you to look back at verse 14 and count how many angels are in verse 14. Did you notice this? How many angels are listed in verse 14? In 15? There are four holding back the the river Euphrates, four. Did you notice that these four are there? Do you remember back in Revelation chapter 7, there were four angels holding back the winds of the earth? I would submit to you that the four angels here are not actually angels. They are demons themselves. These are the bad guys. These are the bad angels. But if you go back to chapter 7, you will see that the good angels were restraining evil, and these bad angels are promoting evil. But God, you say, why would God do that? Why would he allow this evilness to continue on? I mean, Darren, why do young wives die before their time? Why do babies die? Why do wars happen terribly? Why do six million Jews die in the Holocaust? I don't have an answer for every one of those things today. But what I do know is that these angels are loosened and tolerated by God, and they are bound and held and still checked by God. Here's the, here's the takeaway. God is not the author of evil, but he is the controller of evil. That is, he controls it down to the very hour this chapter tells us. And I want you to know there is a distinction. Go read the book of Job. Go read Job 1 and Job 2. God is not the author of evil, but he's the controller of evil. That's why verse 15 says he knows the exact day and hour and and month and year that war is going to break out or has broken out. But I want to remind you, Christian, the truth is nothing can happen in your life or the church's life apart from God allowing it to happen. You may find that distasteful. You may find that distressing about your view of God. But actually, God's people, true God's people, find that very, very comforting. What a comforting truth to know that the future of this world does not depend upon some terrorist who presses a nuclear button, but it depends on God allowing situations to happen even for his glory. You've heard me say it again. I'll say it once again. The future of this world is not in the White House, the Kremlin. It's not Benjamin Netanyahu. It's not Gaza or China or the Middle East. It's in the hands of our sovereign God who controls every hour, day, month, and year. You say, how can he be good and allow all these things? Friends, Jesus, if you go back to Revelation chapter 1, holds the keys. He holds the keys to death and Hades, the unknown and the future. And the point is, is that God reigns. And I don't have a direct answer to your question. That's a big question people ask. Why do bad things happen to good people? Well, the problem is there are none good, no, not one. Friends, we may not understand how God does it, but Scripture is absolutely clear. God is not the author of evil, but he allows the toleration of it for his purposes to advance in this world. If you want to know the greatest evidence of that, look at the cross. 
in the hands of sinful men, the divine man, Jesus Christ, perfect as he was, was foisted up on that cross, died the death we should have died and lived the life we should have lived, but was killed physically. But it wasn't just the Romans that did that, was it? Acts 2 says, Peter preaching, he said, it was the predetermined plan of God that he would die for our sins. The wrath of God laid upon him. So the summary of chapter 9 is that Satan's judgments are actually commissioned by God's sovereign control. Both trumpets at the bottom are in his hands, 5 and 6. There is comfort in knowing that John originally wrote this. He needed to share this with these Christians. God's sovereignty over the demonic realm and over destructive forces is true. All right, time out for a second. We're going we're gonna to get in our big truck and go off-roading in the mud for a minute. You ready? Get our tires dirty. It is Halloween time. Let's be absolutely clear. Satan cannot possess or a demon cannot possess a true Christian. Do not allow some weird, wonky theology, Hollywood-esque life to get into how you view this world. God is in control. If you're a Christian, Satan can tempt you. He can, he can allow the bounds that God allows to hurt you in some ways against see Job, but he can never take your soul. Jesus did that when he said, it's finished. You're his, and no one can snatch you out of his hands. Let's submit ourselves to his control, even when things look as crazy as they do. What a comfort it is to know that nothing can happen outside of God's will, and he will work out for good of those who love him. We can bow under God's sovereignty. Second thing you need to see from this passage lesson practically is that we need to confess the depravity of man. We need to confess the depravity of man. Look, war is an ugly, ugly thing. Many of you in here have served in theaters of war of years gone by, and I don't need to tell you that the reality of coming back to a normal life, whatever that is, is very different once you have seen that. Many of you serve as police officers, security guards, or very intense situations that involve um, weapons of destruction. But human calamity shows the ugliness of sin. Friends, we were not born with a clean slate. We weren't born good or with, with, with the ability to do good. We were born in sin. And that's why, if you look back at verses 20 and 21, you see how this plays out. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up the worshiping demons. Let's stop right there for a second. They were worshiping demons. It means that the truth is that idolatry is, is a, a factory, an idol factory, as the old guys used to say, of an unrepentant heart. The rest of mankind refers to all those who are not in under the throne of God. If you've been with our study, you remember those, those multitude that were so numerous we couldn't count from chapter 6 and chapter 7? These are not the people being referred to here. These are people being referred to that are worshiping the very things God said not to worship. That's why idol worship and demon worship are close companions. To worship stuff is akin to worshiping Satan himself. Dead sinners worshiping dead gods of their own making. Romans 1.22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And don't think idolatry is reserved for a faraway place in this world. It's down the street. It's in your house. It's next door. It may even be in this church right here. We love our sin. And we need to confess that we are depraved, that we love our idols. But look at verse 22. We also love our immorality. Or 21, excuse me. We love our immorality. Did you notice 
Verse 20 is, 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 is uh, the afflicted humanity throughout history, but here's the specific sins of them. First, you see murder. Murder in verse 21 is a wanton taking of human life. Friends, I want to say this because some of you have asked this question, is it ever okay to go to war? There is a time and a place for that. But just taking someone in cold-blooded murder is, is exactly what the Bible says is murder. But may I also tell you that Jesus expanded that definition, didn't he? If you're angry at your neighbor, if you're, uh, if you're angry at the opposite team for how they're beating your team, that's still sin in your heart. Amen? He also says sorceries. Your Bible may have a different word there. The ESV renders it sorceries. It's witchcraft, magic, occultic art. Darren, are you saying we shouldn't celebrate Halloween or play D&D or play Diablo or play? That's another topic for another time. But can I ask you, is that drawing you closer to Christ or is it drawing you further away? Number three, you notice that word sexual immorality. Literally, the Greek word there is a word that unfortunately is in, 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 in our brains, pornea, where we get the short four-letter word for that and, and terrible things, things that occur outside the marriage relationship between a man and a woman, not just physically, but Jesus said, if you lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. And you see that last verse there, the, the depravity of man, is that thefts, stealing, taking all these things. Do you know what these smack of? These are the breaking of the simple Ten Commandments. Go back to Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5. Idolatry violates commands 1 and 2. Murder violates number 6. Immorality violates number 7. And theft violates number 8. It reminds you of Judges chapter 21, verse 25. that says, quote, every man was doing that which is right in his own eyes, end quote. Or is that America 2023? You tell me. The point of all this is, is that we, from Genesis to Revelation, are radically wrong. We are rebels, rebels, and the only way that we can ever be saved is to turn to this God who can save us all. Christian, this was you at one time. This was me at one time. Praise God, his grace came to you, amen? But I want you to remember, never think people are not as worse as they are. God's common grace may restrain evil people from doing Worse, evil things, but outside of Jesus, they are in need of a Savior. Our schools have conditioned our kids to be taught that you, can, you are born with a clean slate, and the choices you make define who you are. You know, there's always a little bit of truth and a little bit of not truth in things sometimes, aren't there? Kids, you do make choices, and they do affect your lives, young ones. But I want you to know that your heart is an enemy of God. You're at war with God. And the only way to solve that war is to turn to Jesus Christ. Last thing is this. We need to bow under God's sovereignty based on this chapter. We also need to confess the depravity of man. But finally, we need to take refuge in Jesus Christ. I want to note one curious thing before we close. Look at verse 13. I told you we're hopping and jumping today. Did you notice that phrase there in verse 13? I'll read it again for us. He says, then the sixth angel blew his trumpet. I heard a voice from, and here's the phrase, the four horns of the golden altar before God. You curious about that? What is that? Well, the horns of the altar in the Old Testament were people went to plead for mercy. If you were in trouble, you made your way to the temple to hold on to those altars because if you held on to the altar, it's like when you're playing tag. You remember that game? And there's a home base and your goal is to, is to touch home base or to hold on to home base because if you're not on home base and they tag you, what happens? You're out. If someone was pleading on the horns of the altar, the blood-dripped horns, they were set free. 
Great example of this is in 1 Kings 1 when Adonijah, one of David's many sons, tried to set himself up as king, even though it was said that Solomon was going to be king. And Adonijah heard that Solomon was coming after him, and you may remember the story, and Adonijah knows that Brother Solomon's going to take him out because he's basically in high treason at this point. And where does Adonijah go? To the altar. And he basically says, let the king swear to me this day that he will not slay his servant with the sword. And King Solomon, King Solomon spared his life because he was clinging to the horns of the altar. Look, for the people of God, for sinners like you and me, the New Testament horns of the altar to which we cling are the bloodiest horns based upon the one who stretched out his arms for us, Jesus Christ. What this reminds me of, Christian, is that we are never safe apart from in the presence of Christ himself throughout our whole lives. We don't believe in sacred and secular, that you check in and act all holy and righteous like some super Christian on Sunday and go live like the opposite throughout the rest of the week. Every square inch of this world, including who we are before Christ, is sacred to him. And so we have fled our refuge And the warning here is that we are to flee from the wrath of come. Cling to his son. Jesus is a refuge for sinners. Hold on to him. And if you're a Christian, by God's grace, he holds on to you so you can hold on to him. Amen? If you're not a Christian, you need to run to that altar, so to speak, which is the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, we love you. Next week, I want to tell you that we are going to finish chapter 10. We're going to try. But as we go through the study, I pray you are less impressed with having every detail filled and you're more thankful that God wins. And that is where we stand. Let's pray together as we close out today. Father, as we come before you, we thank you so much. There's so many details to unpack here, Lord, and our study guide doesn't even touch the foothills of the Himalayas of that which can be said. But Father, I thank you most of all that we who are in Christ are secure in Christ, all because of what Jesus Christ, your son, did for us. Father, we should be the most humble, thankful, worshipful, reverent people because of that. So I pray, Lord, for the impact of the gospel in our hearts would impact our relationships, for spouses here, for parents, for grandparents, for those who are members here. When an off word is said or a look is made or something is suggested, that there would be unity and forgiveness and peace. Father, I pray that we would not see other Christians as the battleground, but we would see in a sense that the battle has already been won, the war has been won, and we are simply emissaries, missionaries, ambassadors together to go into all the world to preach the gospel to every creature and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. For there is one name under heaven by which we are saved, and that is the name Jesus Christ. So, Father, I pray for Christians as we are impacted by this gospel, as the world literally, seemingly, goes off the deep end, that we would be those who have a clear mind, a sober mind, as Paul would say, and be calm and collected as that man was, as he knew the end of the story. So, too, Lord, we're not you, but we know that you've told us the end of the story. You win. Help us to live lives that reflect that. Father, I pray also for any non-Christians here. Again, we're so grateful they're here today, young, old, in between. May you work a work of grace in their hearts, not because of any fancy words I've said or anything else we've done, but all the things that prayerfully have pointed back to you. 
Father, for our church at Tower View, we pray that we would not just make converts or, 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 or conversions or decisions, but we would see people grow from that starting line in baptism all the way up until they move away to another church that can grow them up by your grace under the teaching, living, and preaching of your word. Lord, we love you. These aren't crazy things to ask, Lord, because you've promised them, but may you be blessed through the asking. We have all things. We ask not, Lord. Have not, because we ask not. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen.